0: Good morning. Would you all stand with me? Uh, This is from Mark 12, uh, 38 through 44. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who look to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich, rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two s- small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she has to live on. To start, I- there's like a there's like a subgenre of just scenes in movies that I I adore and you don't you don't see them super often but when you see a good one I uh, it sticks with me and it's the scene of, of like the awkward prayer in a in a movie. The, the 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 example par excellence I can think of is Ben Stiller in Meet the Parents. Everybody remember that? Oh, it's so good. I actually watched it on YouTube this week, uh, subjected myself to it, but you know they ask, they ask him to say grace at dinner and it's just, he's sweating and he's nervous and he's using these crazy big re- religious sounding words that no one in their right mind would use in a normal context. And just, I remember him saying, oh, sweet, sweet, Lord of hosts, <laughs> it's so weird. And all the other characters like start opening their eyes and looking at him. It goes on for way too long. He's praying for like five minutes, it feels like. And uh, I think they're like, oh, that's lovely, Greg, at the end of the prayer. Um, what I love about those scenes, I guess it doesn't strike, it's not quite the same thing as the sort of trying to look more spiritual than you are. But I, I also throw the Will Ferrell, John C. Riley from uh, Talladega Nights. They're talking about, yeah, that's right. It's very good. very good but what especially the meet the parents scene what sticks out to me about that is just that it's a recognizable feeling i bet all of us have at some point which is whenever, like you've got imposter syndrome you're a little bit like i i I feel like i need or want to look spiritual maybe more spiritual than i am in this moment so i'm going to reach for it i'm going to do what i think is sort of the appropriate and socially responsible and acceptable thing here and yeah, and more often than not, once you find yourself in that spiral of doing that, it never goes well. It never goes well. And certainly, I, I don't think I've, I've blundered one quite as, as poorly as that, but I can think of so many examples in my life. I remember the first time I was asked to preach as a college student at the youth group I was serving at. I had, I had no like theological training, nothing, and I just remember like... The mode I walked into that room of sixth graders with was just I need to look smart I need to look like I've got this together. You know why? Because I want an invitation to do this again um I remember the first time I preached at door of hope it was right here in this building uh, Must have been just about seven years ago Yeah, I think it was in an october Yeah, about exactly seven years ago I was the pastor of community groups here when we were meeting here back in the day and um I just remember the feeling of like, okay, Josh White and Tim Mackey are such amazing preachers and like, I'm the brand new pastor here. I've really gotta wow these people. Gotta wow these people. Okay, they oh they like when Tim talks about the Hebrew Bible, so maybe I should throw in some Hebrew phrases. You know, I'm a second year seminary student. Uh, This would be great. And uh, oh, they like it when Tim puts up a, a graphic of like an old coin or something. I'll shoehorn that into the sermon. Yeah. Oh, Josh, Josh is quoting David Foster Wallace. I better find like an edgy novel that I can shoehorn into this thing. (laughs) That was in my mind. I didn't tell a soul, but I was like, you know, I probably had a month of prep leading up to that. And I was just thinking, how do I not blow this opportunity? Namely, by looking spiritual enough to be a preacher at Door of Hope. That was what was going on in my head. And you know what? It doesn't matter how good that sermon was. I assume it was no good but no matter how good it was God hated it <laughs> for those reasons maybe it was fine maybe gospel was proclaimed and that's good and God would be pleased with that of course but the heart of this passage here is this very idea there is always a temptation in religion Christianity just as much as any other to make it about appearances to make it about looking a certain way, looking like a spiritual, looking like a heart and soul follower of this faith or this God, as it may be, at the expense of actually being the real thing. And time and time and time again, it's already happened through Mark's gospel and it's happening again here. Jesus just has zero toleration for this. He, he would much rather you, <laughs> you be your floundering genuine self than to try to put on an act to look like you have more religiosity than you really do. And so, I've been there. I think it's, in many ways, this is a unique temptation and he has a unique condemnation for religious leaders in this passage, you'll see that. But I don't assume that this is only something that people who preach occasionally or even are in leadership, small group leadership or you lead a Bible study or whatever it is. I think every Christian at some point faces these temptations to pretend To put on, to to, to try to to, to stir up more honor and glory and dignity and regard for yourself that's not not, uh, of a piece with who you actually are. So that's what we're talking about today. That's what we're talking about today. Pray with me real quick. Father, I thank you for this passage. Uh, This this was a, a A stinging read for me this week as I prepared it, Father, but I know my soul needs this. I trust that all of our souls need this, Lord. And I was struck as I read this, Father, just how grateful I am that this is the way that you are. This is how your heart is. This is what you desire of your people and not the kinds of pretense, not the kinds of shows that we all just naturally gravitate towards, Lord. So thank you for your goodness on display in this passage we pray, Father, that you would forgive us. We pray, Father, that you would empower us to walk more faithfully and humbly with you as we try to, try to live out our discipleship, Lord. Use this passage, use this time this morning to that end. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Jesus is going to get into the heart of genuine spirituality, at least one angle on it, one piece of it, um, in this passage and 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 namely by, by a contrast between two groups here So we've kind of got two stories that I think work as like parallel images m- m- You know kind of warped mirror funhouse reflections of one another that we will take one at a time The first has to do with the scribes. So again, Jesus is in the temple We, t- we read that last week. He's still teaching in the temple And This is just a teaching. It doesn't seem to be prompted by a question or anything else. He's got another thing He just wants to submit here on Holy Week as he's he's getting nearer and nearer the cross by the minute. And in his teaching is Jesus. Jesus is teaching. He said Beware of the scribes. Remember the scribes? We t- we've talked about them a couple of times now. These are the experts in Jewish law, the ones who are responsible for teaching how to understand and follow the law of God to their fellow Jews. Um, they were prestigious, they were deeply spiritual um, experts, experts, expert teachers. Jesus says, Beware of the scribes, fear them, be on guard, like, keep. Keep a watchfulness about them. And I don't think he's necessarily talking about all the scribes. He's talking about the ones who like to walk around in long robes. And they like greetings in the marketplaces. They'd walk into the marketplaces and they'd receive the kind of uh, deferent recognition. Oh, great teacher, great teacher, great teacher. They like that. They like receiving that honor. And they have the best seats in the synagogues. The seat... The the seats up front that everyone would look at and see. Oh, that's a prominent spiritual person the places of honor at feasts Verse 40 who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers They will receive the greater condemnation All right So the scribes it's self-evident. What are they doing? They're living in such a way that betrays they have this desire for special recognition for glory for prominence I think there's pride here. There's arrogance here. There's pompousness here In some ways you could say their own honor is valued over against the honor of God probably without realizing it so everything about them enjoys the sort of place of privilege that they occupy in this culture and yet that is mixed with, Jesus calls it out, a cruelty, a a cold cruelty that exposes the pretense of it all. Like Jesus says that some of the scribes were devouring widows' houses, which just immediately sounds like, oh my gosh, what in the world is happening here? New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado says, quote, this probably has to do with a scribe sponging off devout people who felt an obligation to support a scribe as a representative of God's law. Both then and now, there are examples of Jewish and Christian religious leaders who unscrupulously solicit support from simple, vulnerable people who are led to believe that they are supporting the very work of God, but can ill afford to give as heavily as they are solicited to do. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes. 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 How many TV preachers have you come across who say, "If you know, it doesn't matter how poor you are, if you will just give, if you'll just give to me, if you'll bless me, you will be blessed. God will see that and he will bless you. And as we read this passage, you see how there's just a subtle twist of what is going on in this passage. Jesus is gonna greatly affirm this widow's abundant generosity, but this is a, this is a manipulation. Of the, worship, of the heart of God, the, 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 the type of worship that God requires. This is stepping in for personal gain and saying, no, I'm gonna insert myself here as a middleman and benefit probably from these widows who in this day and age had very little economic resource to care for themselves. And so they're just soliciting more and more in money. You want your fortunes to change? Give me your money. Give me your money. Give me your money. Don't you care about the things of God? Give me your money. So this is pretty ugly. This is pretty ugly. Um, I would just say, religious influence can and can be a uniquely intoxicating and dangerous thing. It is so easy. If, if, if the things that we're saying are true up here about Jesus, some of you in this room, you may be trying to decide, discern, you may be skeptical, whatever, and that is, we're so glad you're here. But, but let's, just, let's just assume all of this is true. Jesus really is the eternal Son of God who came into human flesh, who died in your place, who taught these things, who, who, who accurately reflects the, the heart of the eternal God who created all things. Um, if all this is true, and if he is right when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, and we carry this message, and we get to be the mouthpieces and the vehicles, which we all do, we all get to be the ambassadors of reconciliation. We're all described as priests, Elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a powerful message. It's the most important message in the world. And if you believe you're carrying the most important message in the world, oh man, if you don't carry that message with integrity, if you're not on guard against manipulating, if you're not on guard against um, becoming in love with the sort of acclaim and the sort of uh, deference that comes with that, you are a dangerous person. You will become one. We've probably all seen examples of it. I know I've become examples of it at times. And Jesus has no toleration for it. What does Jesus say about these people? He says, they will receive the greater judgment, the greater condemnation. Why? Shouldn't God judge everybody equally? I would say three things. Right, in fact... It's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures that those who are entrusted with the most, those who are are given the most knowledge, the most insight into God, the responsibility for teaching him, they are held to higher standards. When they fail those standards, the judgment is greater. Here's a few reasons why. One is that they are missing the spiritual heart of obedience with their pretense. In Mark's gospel, he's already just said, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, the key to understanding what God wants of us is in two commandments, remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are to respond to God's first and prior love by loving Him in return, and then a love for neighbor flows out of that. They utterly lack it. And you see it the way in which they're 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 brutalizing these widows economically. They claim to be experts in God's law, but they are showing themselves to be doing exact, the exact opposite of meaningfully following him, meaningfully loving him, which must necessarily entail loving their neighbors. In fact, they're devouring widows' houses instead. They miss the heart of spiritual obedience with their pretense. Second, they miss the heart of kingdom greatness with their pride. Jesus has talked about this multiple times through Mark already, but remember this. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Remember that? And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, in my kingdom, greatness comes through servanthood. You want to be great? You become the most lowly. You want the place of prominence? You take the position of most humility. And he's going to model that for us. These aren't just empty words from Jesus, but he does it in the greatest act ever, in the God-man going to the cross, the Roman cross in our place. So they miss the heart of genuine kingdom greatness with their pride. Third, they miss the heart of compassionate justice with their cruelty. Jesus has already modeled a deep, deep compassion for vulnerable people throughout the gospel. And that's been in line with what God spoke in the Old Testament through the prophet Zechariah. Read this, listen to this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. The Apostle James wrote years later reflecting on these things, maybe reflecting on this very teaching here. James wrote, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God's heart beats in a special way for the most vulnerable. In, in the Old Testament world, it was this group, uh, some theologians call it the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, the fatherless, immigrants, and the poor. The way the world set up, and it's not so different today, these were the groups that had basically very, very little opportunity to economically care and provide for themselves. And God says for his people, they are going to be a people unique in this ancient world that is going to specially care for these groups. It will not be like it is everywhere else in Israel amongst God's people. These groups will be cared for. And we see the, that, that exact same heart all over Jesus' ministry. And we see these teachers of the law doing the exact opposite, don't we? They're doing the exact opposite. Again, devouring widows' houses, the ones who would claim to teach these things. So, all that said, the teachers of all people were supposed to know and to share this heart, this heart of God. And Jesus says, because they do not, they will be judged more harshly they will be judged more harshly. So what's the lesson of this first story? We could say this. God hates outward religious pretense. My hunch is that this is a lesson that every one of us in this room, whether you're a disciple of Jesus or not, that you appreciate. Again, that, that, that we all take it, I think, as good news that Jesus would say this. Because let's be honest, who, who is worse than a religious hypocrite? Who is worse than that? And I say that as a preacher, as a pastor. It's the worst. And I know I'm it half the time. And it's the worst. And I'm sorry when I am. There is nothing worse. There is nothing worse. I think we're, we're glad that Jesus has this heart. We should be glad. But it would be foolish for any of us even if you've never been in a position of leadership in the church or whatever, to not ask yourself where you might fall into these same temptations would be foolish. Everyone needs to ask this question. It doesn't have to be expressed in the sort of obviously manipulative, sort of crass ways we see like insanely rich TV preachers funding private jets off of, off of widows or whatever. It doesn't have to look like that it crops up every time the way that we are presenting ourselves is calculated to be different from reality, which I suspect, if we're honest, is far more often than we'd like to admit. It's far more often than we'd like to admit. So don't let this roll off your back. Don't let this become a chance for you to exercise pride and say, thank God I'm not like these scribes. May it it be an opportunity for us to humble ourselves and to come under the weight of this. Say, Lord, search me and help me. Amen? Amen. Right. So there's a second story. Second story, verse 41, he, he, he talks about the scribes and then 41, he sat down opposite the treasury. So Jesus is in the, the temple courts, probably the court of women is what it was called, which is where the treasury was. And he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Uh, tradition tells us there were like these 13, was it 13? I have my notes here, yes. 13 sort of uh, they were boxes shaped like shofars or like trumpets uh, that were for different offerings and so there's all these different offering boxes and because they're shaped like trumpets when you dropped your coins in it would make loud noise It would actually kind of amplify the sound it's kind of interesting so that, so Jesus comes in and he's watching the people putting money into the offering box or these offering boxes many rich people put in large sums So people would, rich people would come in, they'd probably have large amounts of coins, valuable coins, and they'd drop them in the thing and it would probably make a lot of noise. It'd be very evident. Whoa, that person just dropped a lot of coin in that box. That was a significant gift. Perhaps the assumption would be this must be a deeply spiritual person. Look how much they're giving. But this widow, Jesus sees. She comes with two small coins, the smallest, the least valuable coins that were in circulation at the time. Because of how small her offering was, she's probably making a free will offering which would go to the building of the temple or whatever, but she drops these two coins. It's not gonna make a lot of noise. It's not gonna be a big show. If anyone did notice, they'd probably think, why even bother? Why even bother dropping such a little amount in there? And this immediately, I think we had the sidebar here, Because I think in our now two and a half years as a church community, we've never done, like, any kind of teaching about why give money to things like this. Like, what is she doing giving money to this offering box? Or even in light of talking about our church's finances this morning. What do we think about these things? So I just want to do, we have a slide for it. I just want to do a, a quick, like, a super quick kind of biblical theology of giving. Just hit a few high points. And break it down amongst these three categories. So, the idea, scripturally, that goes all the way back to creation, is that the world is God's. The world is God's. He's a generous creator. He did not have to create, but out of the goodness, and abundance of his heart, he opted to create. He opted to give his creatures, you and me, a beautiful world to participate in. And he empowered Adam and Eve, his first representatives, to rule and to manage God's world underneath him. And before the law was ever given, before um, the Mosaic law came, we have examples of uh, different people sort of responding to God's generosity. And there's this pattern. We see Jacob actually do this. Um, Now I've forgotten what chapter it's in, but in kind of mid Genesis, he offers God a 10th of what he's been given as a free worshipful response. Once the law gets instituted, there are all kinds of specific regulations in place, commands in place for how, people, how the people of Israel are supposed to contribute financially to the ongoing um, ministry, specifically at the temple. So under the Mosaic Law, uh, you can read about this in Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 14, if you're taking notes. Um, the people of Israel were commanded to give a tithe. You've probably heard that term before, tithe. It just means a tenth. A tenth of what they had, namely seeds, Produce and their flocks, their animals, a tenth of everything, and this was sometimes twice a year. So actually, it'd be more like twenty percent in a given year. Uh, most scholars think, but that the, whenever the tithe would happen, they'd say take a tenth of all these things and give them specifically to the Levites, the tribe of Israel that was re- the priestly line that was responsible for the ongoing sort of religious leadership amongst the people. So that's how they didn't get a plot of land; they got this tithe, which is how they were supported. So this was the system God devised to make sure uh, that the spiritual needs of the nation of Israel were met and and the consequences for neglecting, ignoring this tithe were were severe. So that was more or less the way things were until the church age, this side of the cross, the age that you and I live in. um, This side of the cross, we're no longer under the Mosaic law, right? We don't follow that law to the letter. The Levitical priesthood and the temple system is no more. Um, in fact, all believers are called both priests and temples, with Jesus as our high priest. So it's fitting then that we don't see any direct commands to give a tithe of 10 or 20 percent each year in the New Testament. Did you know that? It's not something that's commanded directly in the New Testament. Instead, in the age in which we live, we have a model of radical generosity like, say in Acts 2, 45, the Christians selling their possessions and giving to anyone in the church who had need. Churches taking special offerings to meet the needs of churches elsewhere or commands to, to pay for those who are, to pay the way of those who are preaching the gospel. Um, Romans twelve eight. 8, we, we talked about this briefly when we were talking about spiritual gifts, but he He names kind of generosity as a spiritual gift, one of the gifts necessary necessary for the healthy functioning of the church. That there are some people that will just have this abundant ability and perhaps means and resources to give to the body in a way that sustains it. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Um, One more passage. I think captures the heart here. 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think that might capture the heart of the New Testament vision for giving. So to conclude, I know this is all quick and maybe too much to keep up with, but... The New Testament speaks of disciples who are generous with all of their resources, supporting their churches, supporting one another, supporting the poor. It doesn't seem concerned to lay out specific amounts or percentages for giving generously, but it puts our hearts under the microscope. And while 10% has been a meaningful practice for many Christians throughout church history, there's nothing wrong with that. The, the key idea is that giving is meant to be done generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully. It's an act of, it's a free act of worship to, to God. The question to ask is, are we faithfully stewarding what God has entrusted to us to support the spiritual work of our churches and the urgent needs of our sisters, brothers, and vulnerable neighbors? And I think if you, if you come to embrace the idea of giving, as a spiritual discipline, which I think is the right way to think about it. It's, it's, a, it's a commitment to doing something difficult you wouldn't normally do in order to, to give more of yourself over to God. It becomes an idol-battling, faith-building, kingdom-work-supporting discipline that, that actually will deeply form you over time. And so I just say, if you, if you haven't embraced this practice, today's passage is a good challenge to step into it there you go quick biblical theology of giving so this woman she gets this cross hadn't happened yet she's probably just living as a faithful Jew maybe maybe years later she'd she'd come to believe these things about Jesus who knows but she gets the heart she gets the heart She gives, she has nothing to give, but she gives so sacrificially that it it marvels Jesus even. She gives far more than a tithe of her resources, but far less than nearly anybody else. And what Jesus does is she probably doesn't think, she she probably assumes no no one cares whatsoever about her. No one sees her, but you know what? The Messiah does. The Messiah sees her and he holds her up as the model of genuine, worshipful generosity. She embodies for us in this this passage, she embodies for us the principle of loving God with everything you have. We should notice that language that goes back to the great commandment, just a, a couple stories before this. Jesus says, out of her poverty, she's put in everything she had This is is what it means in one way, in one avenue of life to give your whole self to God. She's modeling it for us. The heart of Christian spirituality isn't performance, pretense, specific dollar amounts, or anything else we might typically think of. It is a love for God with everything and a love for neighbor that flows from it. And We're getting this little window into how she was living this out. Jesus celebrates it for us. She has given only a small amount, but it represented everything she had. And again, she may have felt totally unseen and unappreciated, but Jesus indeed saw her. Jesus saw her and valued her. This is the heart of worship, humble, honest, sacrificial, genuine love in response to the love of God. God hates pretense, he hates performance, he hates fabrication, but he honors humble sincerity more than you can possibly imagine. And this woman had it in spades. And again, it might be one thing. Maybe you've heard this before. You know, someone talking about, "Oh yes, humility, generosity, laying down your life, giving everything." but the one carrying that message having something to gain. The one carrying that message being tempted to abuse that message. Is Jesus that way? Is Jesus a humility and and great sacrifice and servant-heartedness for thee, but not for me kind of leader? Of course not. What she is doing here is is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross you know to the untrained eye this woman is just some poor person dropping in some pennies It's like why don't we even even care about that what difference is that going to make for the temple and all this stuff in the same way that someone seeing jesus carrying his cross being nailed in being hoisted up naked on a roman torture device to the untrained eye you might look and say that's just some lunatic getting his just punishment I'm sure he did something really bad to deserve that. Oh, was he a revolutionary? Was he trying to overthrow Rome? Yeah, a big punishment for that. To the untrained eye, like this is just some, some weird criminal getting, getting, getting killed publicly. But to God, but to God, the Father, Jesus on the cross was the singular act of perfect righteous obedience and justice that resulted in the salvation of all who would believe. Jesus, this example that Jesus is hoisting up here, his condemnation and his affirmation in these two stories, Jesus lived these words in his bones. He lived these words in his bones. He saved us. If you are a Christian, you have been saved because this is the heart of our King, Jesus. He does not stand back distantly from this and say, yeah, that's a good way for y'all to be. He did it. And he continues to do it. This is just who he is. Praise God that he's that way. Praise God that he's that way. So this reminds us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it requires no great financial sacrifice to earn it. It requires no positions of prominence. You don't have to work your way up to earn the best seats. You don't have to wear your fancy clothes that get you accolades or honor. There's no earning. There's no amount you can contribute that will put you in right standing with God. All he asks is for a genuine faith, a genuine faith, a genuine trust, just a humbly throwing yourself at him, saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. I receive it for myself. And then out of a heart that's received this grace and love and forgiveness and this incredible gift, then we have the freedom to lay down our lives, lay down our hearts, to be generous, to be sacrificial, to follow after him into these things as the result. But praise God, we don't have to earn it. He's earned it for us. If that is the case, then we can fight pretense. We don't have to pretend. If we are saved by grace, if Jesus is this for us, then there's no performance necessary. This community could become the kind of community that's just committed to to raw honesty. And with that honesty and openness to being corrected, and openness to being pushed into more and more faithfulness, openness to accountability, yes. But we don't have to pretend to be anything that we're not. We don't have to be, pretend to be anything that we're not. We just keep taking one more step out in faith after this Jesus who already loves us. So, toward Hope Northeast, my prayer on the other side of this is that we'd be a, gener- a, a, a generous community. Whatever that looks like. It might look like two coins, two tiny coins dropped in that don't even make a sound. It doesn't matter. It would be a generous community that leaves pretense behind and says, Jesus, we just want you. We want the real you. and We want you to have the real us, not an imitation. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Right. Let's pray to that end.